Pray with me, Father in heaven, that is uh, this end result. That your kingdom would come, that your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And thus we pray even now, God, that your will would be made known to us uh, through your word, that it would work uh, your sovereign rule within us, and that we would follow and be obedient. God, I pray uh, that your word, which is powerful, which accomplishes its purpose, that we might be a people uh, who go out in joy, a people who are indeed led forth in peace, uh, that we would be such a people uh, from the result of your word in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 5. I want to read a couple of different passages. First, from Acts 5, verses 27 to 32. And then I want to read the first seven verses in Acts and chapter 6. So we'll begin in Acts 5, verse 27, please. Hear the word of God. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the them here are the apostles of Jesus. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior and gave uh, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit on whom uh, whom God has given to those who obey him. And then in chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, excuse me, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from, uh, of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I put these two particular passages together in order to isolate three sentences, three verses that I think make the same point. First, in chapter 5, in verse 28, we read this saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then in chapter 6, and verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became 
obedient to the faith. From these three verses we see, I, I think, Luke's theme here, as we're working our way through, it's this theme of the increase of the Word of God. Uh, it's this, this, this um, emphasis, if you will, upon the, 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 the preaching and the teaching, uh, and the increase, even, of God's Word. We, we see that they had filled Jerusalem uh, with this teaching. And that's what aggravated so much the religious leaders of that particular day. They had filled Jerusalem. Think about that. It's the sense that they're saying that all of Jerusalem knows about this just because of your, of your teaching. And then even uh, as something arose in the church that could in some way divert the apostles from teaching, uh, they said, wait a minute, we have, to, we have to pull back here. We have to go a different way. We have to make a plan. We have to get an administrative kind of situation set up here so that uh, the teaching isn't uh, neglected, and then we see finally Luke's summary of all of this at the end of the day, saying that 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 it worked, that this uh, the teaching, the preaching, the word of God increased, and that was what was so important, and that really does exemplify uh, Luke's purpose. You remember from the very beginning, I'm going to run us through this again because it's important for us to see. I think uh, that in the very beginning, the promise was made by Jesus to these disciples that they would be his witnesses. It wasn't a command, it was a promise. It wasn't a command, it was a declaration that this would be true. You are my witnesses, you will be my witnesses. And the the declaration that the Spirit would come upon them and would empower them and would enable them to be these very ones whom Jesus had called them to be. And we see this this happening. They are, in fact, uh, his witnesses uh, in the very beginning, uh, we see at, on the day of Pentecost, we see the sermon preached by Peter. Uh, and we, we see that Jesus is magnified. They're talking about Jesus. We see in the healing of the lame man, what really irked people wasn't so much that this lame man was healed, but rather that they did it in the name of Jesus. And, and Peter went on to preach, to witness to the truth of Jesus. And so we see this over and over and over again. It was, it was the teaching and the preaching and the declaration of what Luke calls and what is called in the book of Acts the very word of God. That which is authoritative, that which is trustworthy, that which is dependable. They were bringing to them, not just simply a a teaching, but their teaching, their preaching, their declaration was indeed uh, the very very word of God. We see that over and over again. Let me run you through some passages. Take out your Bibles. If you close them, you should... No, not to do that. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, um, why? And and then we have some back there. Don't go there. Well, you could go there now, but I'll be done by the time you get back. But um, just remember this for next week. We're a BYOB church. Uh, Bring your own Bible. We don't have pew Bibles because we don't have pews. Anyway, uh, Acts chapter 4. The very prayer of the disciples of Jesus, verse 29. They pray this. And now, Lord, look upon, your th- look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, they knew what they were doing. They knew this wasn't any old word. They knew this wasn't any old speech. They knew this wasn't any old teaching. This was the very word of God. And so they prayed for boldness that that word of God would go out. And then in Acts and chapter 4, we read this. 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now these particular ones that are scattered, and we'll get to chapter 8 in a while, uh, but these particular ones who were scattered were all the followers of Jesus except the apostles. The apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. Everybody else was scattered. And so this wasn't just something that was true for the apostles. This was true for all the disciples of Jesus, that they were the very ones who were to spread the word of God, and that's what they did. They were scattered about preaching, that is, speaking forth, declaring this word, and it was the word of God. And then when we look in verse 12 of that same chapter, but when they believed uh, Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and made the, in, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So this is a story about Peter going to Samaria and he preached and it's what's called preaching the good news. And then in verse 14, and when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that, that Samaria had received the word of God, so this good news that was preached is the word of God. Um, they'd received the word of God. Uh, they sent Peter and John down and so forth and so on. And then in verse 25 of this same chapter, we read this. And when they had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. So this word of God, this proclamation about Christ, uh, is the gospel, that is, is good news. And then in chapter 10, we have this situation where Peter goes to the household of a Gentile named Cornelius. And, and here's what happens, verse, uh, verse 36, chapter 10. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So that's what Peter's doing. And then verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, that is the word of God. Chapter 11, verse 1. This is the summary of that. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So you see, this word of God, this gospel, this proclamation of Jesus, it's true, it's authentic, it's authoritative. And then in chapter 13 and verse 42. Now we can go to verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is Paul. And Paul is out and he's, he's, he's teaching and he's preaching and he goes to the synagogues to do that. And so on the Sabbath, that Saturday, uh, it says the whole town came to hear, that is to hear Paul preach, and what he was preaching was the word of the Lord. And then in verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first of you. And so what Peter, or what Paul and Barnabas understood themselves to be doing was to be speaking the very word of God. And Paul summarizes this as he writes to the church in Thessalonica and First Thessalonians and, and chapter 2 and verse 13 he says this to them and about them he said and we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of God which is at work within, uh, within you believers and so he's saying, this is the very word of God. This isn't just nothing. This is something. It isn't just something. It's everything because it's the word of God. It's that thing which we can trust, which we can rely on, which has the very authority of God behind it. This word of God is the gospel. Now we understand that word if we've been around the church long enough. We understand the word gospel means good news. And it does. In, in Greek, it's made up of a, of a root word and a prefix. The, the prefix means happy 
or, or good. Uh, the root is news or message. And so it's, it's good news. In fact, in the days of Jesus and this early church, this word gospel was a relatively common word. And it was a word that simply meant that good news has come. Not just simply good news that's, that's average, but great news. News that's epic. News that's going to change uh, everything. Uh, and it would be declared. You know, when, when something good happened, uh, it didn't make the TVs or the headlines or the internet or the radio or any of that because such didn't exist. And the way this good news traveled was by way of what you and I would call sort of a town crier. Somebody would show up with a proclamation. Somebody would show up with a declaration. And they would shout it out. And they would pin up a little notice. And it would be something like, the victory has been won. The battle has been won. It was good news. Gospel would never be, we lost. It would always be, we won. And so when the good news guy came, everybody was happy about that. And they would say something to the effect... How lovely are the feet of those who bring such news. They would see him coming and say, yes, this is great news. It would be news about a victory won. It would be news about, about a new son born to the king. And that would be great news because they'd say, oh, yes, that means that the kingdom will, 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 will go on. It won't end with this king, but he's had a son. And that's great news to us. That's epic. That could change everything. And so it would be good news to them. And so this is good news, this, this gospel. That's why we sing, Hark, the herald angels sing. It wasn't that all the angels were named herald. But they were herald angels. That is, they were these declarers. And what they declared was good news. We bring you good news of joyful tidings, great tidings. And that news was this, for unto you this day, born in the city of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That was the good news. That's what they were declaring. That's what they were proclaiming. And everyone would understand that language. That's gospel. That's really good news. And so, so this news that the apostles had, this news that the followers of Jesus had, was good news, great news, epic news, news that changed everything. And people were to hear this and it was to ring in their ears, yes, this is really great. The Christ has come. You see, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the rule and reign of Jesus, the future coming of Jesus, all of that which was being proclaimed by the disciples, that was the guts of their message. Every time we read a sermon in the book of Acts, we'll find that there. It may have other applications. It may have different groups of people to whom it's spoken. But that guts is always there. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus rules and reigns, Jesus returns. That's the guts of it. And that's to be good news. And so it isn't simply a proclamation, it isn't simply a preaching, but it's also their teaching. It's also the explanation. Somebody would raise their hand and say, why is this such good news? Why would it be good news that, that our religious leaders had this Jesus put to death? Why is that good news? And then the explanation would come. Because he's the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Christ, the Savior. That is to say, he's the very one who's come and died for us and was risen to prove that his sacrifice was accepted. He rules and reigns even now. And he's going to return to make everything right, to bring the full consummation of his kingdom into play. 
Because you see, the desperate need, though it's not often recognized, the desperate need of every human being is to know God. If you read novels, if you watch television shows, various movies, there's a particular plot that turns up every once in a while. Uh, And it's a plot that's rather interesting to Americans because I think many can resonate with it. And it, you know, generally goes something like this. You have this, this child that grows up in a wealthy family. And in this wealthy family, this child is spoiled by their dad. They get all kinds of stuff. Everything anybody could ever want, they have. Stuff, opportunities, everything. The father provides. But then as you watch this child grow up into adulthood, you find a miserable adult. And you think, why should this kid be so miserable? Look at all this stuff they've had ever since they were a kid. The best schools, the best clothes, the best food, the best nannies, the best vacations, uh, the best of everything. And now they have cars and house and opportunity. Why is it that they're so miserable? And when, when, the, when the climax comes, uh, the result is the kid crying out to their dad saying, but I never knew you. I never really knew you. You never really shared yourself with me. I, I never really connected. You, I have all this stuff, but without knowing that you love me and without knowing who you are, it doesn't really ultimately satisfy at all. Some of you know that story personally, maybe even without the stuff. But you see, that's just a shadow of the reality of the truth with our Heavenly Father. That's just a shadow of the reality that every human heart needs to know God. Now, we suppress that truth, the Bible says, because amazingly, irrationally, if we could see it from an eternal perspective, we suppress the truth about God and His righteousness and His kindness and His justice and His love and His mercy and all that He is because we'd rather shut Him out of our lives and live our own way. We'd rather shut Him out of our lives and and go our own way according to what we think is best. And, and you see, that's the problem. That's, that's sin, the Bible would say, to shut God out, to deny him his place, which is God, Lord, Father. And as we deny him that place, no matter what we get, it can't ultimately satisfy. And the good news of Jesus is to come to say, I've taken away that which hinders you knowing God. First and foremost, he is the exact representation of our Heavenly Father. He's the exact representation of God. The author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you honor me, you honor the Father. And so God shows up in flesh to show us who he is. He's the very revelation of God. As Jesus would say, I'm the light of the world. In other words, you can't see anything. You can't see the value of the blessing. You can't see the value of the stuff. You can't see God without me. Everything is darkness. But I am indeed 
the very light of the world. And then he says, now I'm going to take the blinders off. By the very power of my life, the very power of my death, the very power of my resurrection, the very power of my spirit. I'm the only one who can do that. I can take the blinders off. Because the blinders are sin. And the guilt that you live in. And it distances you from God. And it creates, it causes you to live in this darkness. It causes you to live in this place where, where you don't see God. You don't know Him. And nothing can ultimately satisfy. Or you can fill it with stuff. But in the end result, you're going to say, but, but I never knew. And Christians, you see, just a little aside, Christians fall into this trap as well. We end up living in the blessings of God. We end up living, wanting the blessings of God without really wanting to know God. And so, so we live in the blessings and we wonder why they don't really satisfy. And they don't really satisfy because they're to take us to God, to give Him thanks, to worship Him. And so we pray about all these blessings, all the stuff that we want from Him, and, and we give Him lists of things that He needs to give us if we're going to be happy. And we forget to say, we want to know you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. But Jesus comes and he says, here's the problem. The real problem is your rebellion. The real problem is God's justice. Your rebellion causes him to turn his wrath towards you because he's just and holy. And so Jesus comes and the good news is Jesus comes and, and takes that penalty of that sin so that those who believe in him then can know him, can see him, can experience his love and his kindness and his mercy and his grace in the context of their own lives. And then you see, stuff can satisfy because we know that it's from this one who loves us. And then that's real security. That's real peace. That's real intimacy. And that's really good news. And so it really is good news. It's the very word of God so we can trust it. If anybody else was telling us this, it would be crazy, but it's God who's telling us this. If anybody else would, be, would tell us that this God who is holy has sent a sacrifice so that all we do is trust in him and he accepts and receives us, wait a minute, but it's God who says this to us. It's God who says, trust me. It's God who says, I sent my son. It's God who said, my son is the propitiation, that is, the satisfaction for your sin. So it's God who says, trust me in this. And thus, we take it on his authority. So it was so important for the apostles of Jesus to say, this is the word of God. This isn't our word. You remember the apostle Paul, he had such a hard time convincing people that he really knew the gospel. And what he was really preaching was the gospel. And so he had to tell the church in Galatia about his experience. He said, I didn't get this from men. I got this first from God. God revealed it to me. I saw Jesus. I was taught this. And then I came to the apostles, the other apostles, and they confirmed it, that I got it just in the same way they got it, in the same understanding. And so we're all together in this. So trust that this is the word of God. It isn't the word of man. In fact, he said that if you follow any other gospel, if you think any other news is good, you'll be cursed. Because this is the only news that is really good. This is the only news that enables you to know God. Rick was preaching a couple of weeks ago from 1 John chapter 2. 
the very text that says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, for the sins of the whole world, meaning that Jesus is the only one who makes propitiation. There isn't anybody else. There isn't anybody else you can trust. There isn't anybody else you can go to. But everybody in the whole world is invited to come to him. And he's the only one. That's what was so crucial in all of this for Luke. And what's great is that we see this word of God increase uh, as we move through the scripture. Luke gives us various uh, summaries about that. He tells us about the word of God increasing. We see it in this passage in chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of, of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's sort of the refrain through this book of Acts. The word of God increased. More were added. More were added. And the reason he tells us that, tells us that is because there's all kinds of obstacles to the word of God increasing. Uh, we saw that in the very beginning. Just as Jesus told his disciples that there would be uh, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I mean, if you just think about that for a minute, if you're one of the disciples, you think there is at least two big problems here. One is transportation in those days, and the other is language. I mean, how are they going to do this? How are they going to get to the ends of the earth? And how are they going to talk to people who speak different languages? And you get a sense that on the day of Pentecost, God was just saying, let me just give you a sneak preview. Since it's the day of Pentecost... There are men here from all over the known world that have come into Jerusalem. I, I had them exiled centuries ago, so they'd be far away. But now they've got to come back. So I've been thinking about this a long time. And so now they come back, and here they are in Jerusalem. So we've got that taken care of. We've got people from all over the world here. Now, it's true that they know a little Aramaic, they know a little Greek, they know a little Latin. So here's what I'm going to do. You're going to talk... And they're going to hear you in their own languages. So that at the end of the day, you'll probably say, I guess this can be done. Don't know quite yet how it's going to be done, but you brought everybody to us, and now listen, they heard it. So, okay. And as it begins out, you see, the, the word I think that Luke is pressing upon us is, don't worry. It's going to get done. Step out. Do it. God is with you. This witness will happen. You'll be my witnesses. Go for it. Don't be hindered. And then persecution comes. Persecution comes. They heal this lame man, you remember? And the religious authorities come against them. Ah, but, but, but God gives courage to Peter and John and they stand their ground. You go, yes. They were filled with the Spirit of God and they stood their ground. And then more uh, persecution comes. Uh, as we saw persecution coming they were rearrested for preaching again but but don't worry god sent an angel they were released to preach again they were re-released they preached to the religious authorities uh, then gamaliel who was not on their side spoke on their behalf you remember last week we talked about that and so then they were going to be released because they held to gamaliel's view Ah, but they were beaten first, but that didn't even deter them because God gave them strength and they thought themselves to be honored to suffer for the name of Christ. And so they went out house to house and shared this gospel. 
hypocrisy came into the church through Ananias and Sapphira that could have ended this wonderful, loving community of honesty and authenticity and sharing with one another, but it didn't because God saw that and interrupted it and and judged them and they died. But the word of God continued to increase. And now, when we come to chapter 6, there's another thing that happens. And this is somewhat different than all the rest. Because it isn't hypocrisy, that is it. it isn't a sin that they had to eradicate. It isn't persecution, because it comes from within. But what we find is something's being neglected by the church. Something that shouldn't be neglected. Something that can't just be cast out. Something that just can't be forgotten about. Because there's widows who aren't being cared for, or at least perceive they're not being cared for. And the way the incident comes about is, is sort of quite human, if you will. That are... There are two different cultures of Jewish people in Jerusalem at this time. There are the Hellenists, whose culture is primarily Greek. And there are the Hebrews, or the Hebraic ones, whose culture is primarily Hebrew. It's foreign to us, by definition, because we're neither. But... um, uh, but it's, it's real in the midst of that culture. And the way that the Greek-speaking and Greek-culturally-influenced uh, uh, Jewish people uh, became that way again was because of the exile. And then over the time, uh, they migrated back to Palestine. And so there they were in Jerusalem. They went to Greek-speaking synagogues. So everything was in Greek. In fact, this whole issue had been recognized centuries before when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. Uh, and uh, you can pick up a copy, I'm sure, Signs of Life, or have it special ordered, uh, or borrow mine because I don't really use it. But uh, uh, it's the Hebrew Old Testament in Greek. Um, and so they had Greek synagogues and Greek culture. And then the ones who still spoke Aramaic and had their uh, synagogue in Aramaic and Hebrew and, and that culture. Remember Paul referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, saying I was part of that group, because that seemed to be more special. Well, there were widows. Many widows in Jerusalem, in fact. And, uh, and there they were. Many had come to faith in Christ, and they needed help. And it appears as if, at least from the Greek-cultured widows, that the Hebraic widows were getting better treatment. And you remember that up until this time, All of that was up to the apostles. People were selling property and they were taking the proceeds and laying it at the feet of the apostles. So you get the sense that it was their job to to distribute it. And now there was a complaint that came forth. They couldn't just say, well, let this group of widows die. Right? That really wouldn't have sounded very good. Uh, There are all kinds of commands in the Old Testament scripture that they were to care for widows. In fact, as the church progresses, Paul uh, gives Timothy special instructions as to how to care for widows. Uh, The Apostle James tells us that true religion is, is the care of orphans and widows. And so we can't just let that go by. But the apostles were faced with a real dilemma at that moment in time. And that real dilemma is we can't do both. What do we do? And so they went to the congregation and they said, here's our situation. Uh, These widows need help. So give us some names. Choose some people. Choose some men. Our standard is this. They must be full of the Spirit. They must be people of good repute. And they must be full of wisdom. Uh, That's what we need. Men like that. 
And then we're going to give the administration of all of this over to them. And so you can see even then, even though the church is young, you can see uh, uh, the Holy Spirit come and gifting and calling various ones into this ministry or that ministry. Um, and that's precisely what happened. Uh, they called these seven men. Interestingly, all with Greek names. It was the Greek widows who were complaining. And so basically choose some among your own that you trust in order to, to, to make this happen. And so the, the, the apostles got those names. They approved those names. They laid hands on those men. And they set them out and they said, go to it. Take care of this. And the reason that they did that was so that the word of God would not be hindered in increasing. Notice how they put it. Says it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now I must admit that on first reading that sounds a little harsh. I, I don't think it meant to be harsh. I don't think that's how it was said. I don't think it was said out of frustration. I don't think it was said out of anger. I think it was said out of out of of of, of hope that this problem could get solved. They looked at the situation and they said to themselves and to the congregation, "We can't do both." I know we've been doing both. But we can't continue to do this because what needs to happen here from our vantage point, our perspective, is the word of God needs to continue to be pressed out. We can't neglect the widows because to do that would say that we don't really believe this word that we're giving out. But we can't stop moving out. We can't stop this increase of the word of God. Now, at this point... Just to give you a little window into my sermon preparation time, because I only have four minutes left, or ten, you know, it's summer. Uh, there's many, many ways I could go here. I could talk about being good Presbyterians and breaking up between elders and deacons. I could talk about uh, different gifts in the body. All of that would be appropriate as well. But here's what I want to say about this today. We'll come back to this later. Here's what I want to say about this today. This is why I think this is in here. This is why I think Luke includes this particular incident here. Because I think he wants to to add it to everything else he's been saying. And what he's been saying, I think, is this. We've been called to be witnesses of Jesus. The word of God must increase. There'll be all kinds of things, things which are bad, like persecution and hypocrisy things that need to get done, like caring for the widows or other kinds of things that we need to do in the care of the body, that will come up over time. And if we're not careful, if we don't handle these things correctly, it will hinder our witness. But I think what he's saying to us is this, relax. God will bring a solution. God will bring solutions to every situation of persecution, of sin, of care, of need. God will bring a solution to every body of people who desires for his word to increase. For every body of people that desires for him to be known, solutions to every issue will come if you seek him. Because the apostles said that they wanted to devote themselves to the word and to prayer. And you see, those things always go together. You remember, the apostles uh, uh, prayed that they would have boldness to speak the word of God. 
So it wasn't much, oh, we're just going to go learn the word of God and know it and then go out and do it. No, they didn't skip that step that said, we need to pray that God will give us boldness, that God will give us power in order to do that. Word and prayer are always together. You remember, as Paul talks about uh, the spiritual battle that we're in, in Ephesians chapter 6, if we look at verses 17 and 18 and, and punctuate it, uh, not like we have in our own Bibles, but take a better punctuation. And we look at verses 17 and 18. We'd read it like this. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Oh, the ESV does a good job of... Read your ESVs if you have that version. It's the right uh, punctuation. And take the helmet of, the spirit, the, of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying. The thing I don't like there is the comma. Praying. Take up the sword of the Spirit praying. Right? Don't just take it up reading. Take it up praying. Say, God, make this real. Produce this in my life. Produce this in the lives of others. And so Paul would go on praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He's saying, listen, in his own life, he takes up the word praying that he might be bold and it might work this gospel. And he says, so pray for me, pray for all the saints in the same way. Take up the word of God and pray it. Pray it over the people. Pray it over the saints. Pray it over me. Pray it over the community. Pray it over the land. Pray it over the world so that it would prove itself. It would show itself. In fact, he puts it like this to the church in Thessalonica, Second uh, Thessalonians, and chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He says, All right, I want you to, to, to pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, that is, may increase. That's the very theme of the book of Acts. Pray that. Now, in order for that to happen, of course, we can't just be on our knees. We've got to be out there. We've got to be spreading it. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. You can't just go out there and spread it without praying. You can't go out there and pray without spreading. It's a both and. Now, some of you may pray more than you spread, and some of you may spread more than you pray. But as a body of people, we've got to be doing both and committed to both. And then I think... God will help us, not only with that, but God will help us solve every other problem, whether it's care, whether it's discipline, whether it's building buildings, whether it's being united together. He will help us in all of that if our focus, if our commitment is to the word and prayer. Eighteen years ago, I met with a group of people who wanted to plant a church. And as I listened to all that I heard from that group of people, what I heard was this. We want to establish the word of God in this community. And that resonated with me because uh, years before I had thought this, that ministry, anybody's ministry, Ministry rises and falls on the basis 
of the power of the word of God working through his spirit to change people's lives. And if that doesn't work, we're sunk. We have no plan B. And so, as I began to think about a church that would establish the word of God in a community, I said, yes, that's right. And that doesn't mean simply that we become a teaching institution. That doesn't mean that we simply come and talk. But it means we pray. And it also means that we care. And it also means that we discipline. And it also means that we handle every bit of persecution that comes our way. But we begin there as being committed to establishing God's word. And I think what Luke is telling us here in the book of Acts is that as we do that with confidence, as we do that as priority, then we can trust that solutions to other issues will come. We must attend to them. We must think about them. We can't ignore them. We have to work them through. But we really can work them through together. We really can work them through as a body. We really can through, work them through trusting because we all have the same desire that the word of God would increase. I don't know how many years ago it was. Uh, I reminisce a lot in the summer, so summer's starting, so I <clears throat> reflect. Most people reflect around January 1st. I'm always way too busy January 1st, so summer is when I do it. A number of years ago, I asked you to pray something, and I'm going to ask you to do that again, to begin praying this prayer out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 that the word of God would increase and spread rapidly and be honored among all as it has been among us. Now, when we pray that, what we're praying is a number of things. Number one is that we honor the word of God. In order to pray the end of that, as it's happened among us, it has to happen among us. If it doesn't happen among us, then we haven't anything to pray. Or God might answer it and nobody would honor the word of God if we're not. And so to be true to this, we have to be honoring the word of God in all of its facets, in the purity of our lives, in our love for each other, in our care for those who are hurting, in our witness to people all over the world. We need to honor the word of God in our own lives. And then we need to pray that this word would spread rapidly. Now, when we're praying that this word would spread rapidly, we need to be available to spread it in various kinds of ways. We need to be open to, to, to supporting others who are spreading it, to sending others who are spreading it. All right. And then I believe that as a church like that, that's grounded, founded on establishing the word of God, that all the time as issues come and problems show, which they will and do and are, that we can have confidence that God will help us to know, to find, to implement solutions so that our prayer would be answered, that the word of God would not be hindered, that the word of God would spread, that the word of God would spread rapidly, that the word of God would spread broadly, that it would be honored by all as it is among us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the assurance that you're at work, that you set our plan, that you order our steps. 
So I pray that we would be with you committed to the spread of your word. Father, we do pray that we would honor it in our own lives, individually and as a congregation of people. In the obedience of our lives and the purity of our lives. And our love for each other and our care for others. And our witness here and throughout the world. So we pray, I pray, that you would cause your word to be honored like that. And thus that you would spread it throughout our community and throughout the world. May we see your word increase. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response to our benediction this morning is this. God's word is truth. Hallelujah. That means, if you say that, that you believe that it's reliable, that it is in fact good news, uh, and that you're really, really happy about that. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now look to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, God's word is truth. Hallelujah.